happy Mother's Day to everybody out there, all you moms. Um, I hope that the fellas in your life are treating you well uh, so far. Um, uh, yeah, just really hope that it's a, a special time. If uh, I want to reiterate what Michelle said. If you did not pick up your um, gift card out there, please do. Uh, we don't want those to just to sit in our office. We want to put those in your hands so you can go have coffee and enjoy uh, a little coffee date. So make sure you pick that up. Um, we know that parenting is an incredibly uh, difficult task, right? It comes with ups and downs. It comes with a lot of joys. And uh, moms, uh, you are in the midst uh, of that day in and day out. And so um, here's the encouragement that I want to give to you this morning. Run the race, right? Fight the fight. Don't give up. Stay in there. You'll take some hits now and then, um, but, but don't give up. Uh, keep swinging. Keep going after it. Uh, help your kids keep their eyes on Jesus. Um, happy Mother's Day to you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you open them up to uh, Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14. Uh, one evening, uh, we were having uh, dinner around our, di- our dining table, and I sat there for whatever reason, and I just looked at the table. Um, and our table, it's, it's nothing fancy. It's just a square, rectangle kind of a table. I actually built it um, years ago. And, and I remember when I was building it, I was just working on that thing uh, for hours, for hours down in our basement. And um, for you guys who have gotten the chance to know me, uh, you know that I am not handy, right? I will carry tools for you. Um, I will uh, do what you tell me to do, but I don't do building projects because they just don't turn out very well most of the time. Uh, and so I had no idea what I was doing. I was cutting things. I was sanding some stuff. Um, I was staining. I was finishing. Um, and every bit of it was new to me. And so there was these moments during the time of, of building this table that I thought to myself, is this really going to be worth it? I mean, at the end of the day, when I'm done with this and all the time that I spent on this, would it have just been easier to go to the mart or something like that and, and pick up a table? Is this really going to be worth it? Now, we're sitting at this table years later after building it, and there's some scratches on it. There's some dents and dings in it. There's actually some teeth marks from our kids uh, in the table. Uh, don't ask me how that happened. Uh, we got bite marks from dogs on the table as well. There's uh, food and glitter in the cracks of the table. Um, there's indentations uh, from pens and pencils from where the kids are doing homework and writing things on there. And you could just see like, oh, that's, there's somebody's name or there's some numbers on there. And it's just really, it's nothing fancy to look at. But yet, as I sat around the table and I was gathered around there, um, there were people who were hanging around that table. And they were laughing and they were eating and they were talking to each other. And every once in a while, they were giving each other a little bit of grace in the conversation. And I sat there and I thought to myself, yeah. It was worth it. It was worth it for what was going on around the table right then. You know, I wonder if Jesus ever had moments where he thought, man, is this going to be worth it? He's sitting around the table at the upper room with all his knucklehead disciples. I wonder if he thought about what was going on then and what was getting ready to go on in his life and what would be going on now in the 21st century. I wonder if he looked at the table and thought, you know, is this really going to be worth it? Moms, do you ever ask yourself that? <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever ask the struggles that you're going through, is it going to be worth it? Dads, do you ever ask yourself that? Is it, is it really worth all the time and effort that I'm putting in with my kids? Um, because there's a ridiculous amount of homework that your kids have to do that you come alongside of, right? Ball games and 
uh, recitals and plays and um, uh, clay shooting events and all, all these different things. There's a thousand things that we've got to be at. Teaching your kids right from wrong, being up late at night, dealing with, with uh, <coughs> upset stomachs, fighting monsters underneath the bed, dealing with the hard conversations when your uh, kid starts to feel left out because they're not getting invited to the parties anymore and you try to convince them that no, that's not true, but you can clearly see that they're not getting invited to the parties. And having those conversations with them and, and then you, you, they got a boyfriend or a girlfriend that breaks up with them and you're trying to walk alongside of them and they're about to go off the ledge and you just got to try to kind of talk them back. And then if you even go out a step a little bit further than that, some of y'all have, have had to literally talk your children off of the ledge to bring them back in. They want to end it, but yet you have to bring them back in and you got to deal with the aftermath and the trauma uh, that comes along with something like that. Do you ever sit around your table, mom and dad, and just think, is all the effort that I'm putting into this, is it really going to, to be worth it? Is it going to pay off in the end? I wonder if Jesus ever had that conversation or ever had that thought. Of course, he's God, right? He knows how the end is going to come. But in his humanity, you know, I wonder if he ever kind of caught the thought there and said, you know, there's a lot of pain here. The friends around the table with me, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. Sometimes they get me, but they don't always get me, you know? In the section of Mark that we're looking at this morning, uh, we find Jesus, he's sitting at the table that's filled with 12 of his friends, but the cross is just a couple days removed, or just a couple days later. And so when we think about the timeline of history and where Jesus is at in the timeline of his life, um, all the events that we think about when we think about Easter and the crucifixion and the resurrection, this is where we're at. Like, we're just days away from all that coming down. This is the timeline of history. And now, he's having this last supper with his disciples before it all goes down. So if you haven't already opened up your Bibles, grab your Bible, and let's look at this in chapter 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, there's some shady business going on here with Judas, isn't there? Like, this brother is out here selling out Jesus. <clears throat> and the question that we've got to ask ourselves, and we don't really get a clear answer to, is why on earth would Judas do something like this, right? Because Judas has been there the whole time with Jesus. He, he's been through it all. Jesus comes and he says to a bunch of these guys, he says, hey, you follow me. You come join the journey. You, you come be one of my disciples, you and you and you, all 12 of these guys. And Judas is one of the guys that Jesus handpicked to come follow him. Jesus chose Judas, and Judas followed. And along the three years that they walked along together, Judas saw everything that Jesus was doing. He saw the miracles. He saw the demon possessions. He, he, he saw um, the healings. He saw the teaching with, um, with great authority and great power. He saw every single bit of this. So how could Judas sell out Jesus like this. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22 that Satan entered Judas. That's scary a little bit. Satan enters Judas, and then he goes and he makes this deal with the religious leaders. So we got to ask ourselves the question, did Judas even ever have a chance? Did, did Judas have to go through with what he went through, or could he have backed out at any moment? Now, we, we know from Scripture, we know from the Old Testament that how this is fulfilling a bit of a prophecy. We know that Judas 
is selling out Jesus for how many pieces of silver? 30, right? 30 pieces of silver. Some scholars say that maybe that silver, depending on the quality of the silver, the quality or the, the amount of weight that each silver coin had, which coin that we're actually looking at, that that could have been up to only five days of, of wages for, for a working man or woman. Some scholars say that it could have been up to 120 days of wages, depending on the amount of silver and the size of the coin and the quality of the silver that it was. Modern scholarship says that um, that coin or those 30 co- uh, pieces of silver would be the equivalent to us maybe in our, day, in our time of day about $265. $265 to sell out Jesus. That was the price of his life. It costs more to buy an Xbox right now than it did to sell out Jesus. But I want you to know in this passage, there's the sovereignty of God at work and the fact that he is making a choice that we don't understand, that confuses us and baffles us. But at the same time, with God's sovereignty and his choosing, there is this, this, there's this opportunity where Judas also is using his human choosing. So he has a choice to make as well. So you see sovereignty and the choosing of, of humanity working together here. Now, before this ever even happened, Judas's lifestyle was already leaning in this direction, right? I think Judas was already kind of ticked off about what happened last night um, with this girl who shows up in their little banquet, their little time, their little dinner, and she shows up and she pours out expensive oil all over Jesus' head, and he kind of wigs out and is like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? We could have sold that and made a lot of money. And here's what we find out about Judas is that he's not concerned about the oil. He's not concerned about Jesus being anointed. What he's concerned about is the fact that he needs his hands on the money because he has been taking money out of the bag. The money that has been funding the ministry and allowing them to go from town to town to town without having to go stop and do some work, right? There is a funding that is happening and Judas is saying, man, we could have used that money. I could have put it in my pocket. See, Judas's heart It was already conflicted. There was a sin of greed that had taken root in his life. And that greed had led to theft. Satan was already pulling the heartstrings of of Judas here. And it's not a far leap from greed to theft. And it's not a far leap from uh, the, the, the theft of taking what doesn't belong to you and then going on to compromising your morals, to compromising your ethics, to blowing up relationships. For what? For money? For pride? For for arrogance? For greed? Because you don't want to say you're sorry? Judas' heart here was already on a path of destruction. But there's something that we've got to consider here that we can easily overlook if we're not careful in this passage. What we need to know is as we read this passage that Judas is sitting at the table with Jesus too. Think about that. He's one of the twelve... And he is sitting at the table with Jesus, just like everybody else. He'd been making terrible choices in his life. Like nobody would disagree with that. He had been making a mockery of his relationship with Jesus. He had been destructive behind the scenes. But yet he is still sitting at the table with everybody else. And so what we need to know as we're diving into this is that the table that Jesus was setting was going to be a table of grace. 
where the jacked up people with the huge problems that land them in jail can sit at the table with the people who have these little white lies, who share gossip and all that sort of thing. So the big lie people, the little lie people, the jacked up people, and the people who think they've got it all together, they can sit down at the table together. It's going to be the table of grace. And so this is the background. This is what's happening. So look at verse 12 with me. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, I think there are two words here that we've got, or two phrases that we've got to pay attention to if we're going to understand and grasp what's happening with Jesus and what's going to happen with the disciples here in the next couple of verses or during this time period. What Jesus says, uh, or what Mark says, is um, that there was the, it was the first day of unleavened bread, and it was the Passover. Now, these are new words to us in Mark, but these aren't new words in the Scripture, okay? So I think it would do us well if we just do a quick dive into uh, the Old Testament, especially in Exodus chapter 12, and I think it would help us. And so if, if you want to flip in your Bible, you can flip over to Ex- Exodus chapter 12, or if you just want to write it down so that you can study it later, um, you'll know that that's where we're uh, pulling this from. If we want to stick with the table motif too, um, God gave Israel uh, a table to remember for the rest of their lives. And the thing that he wanted them to remember was that, that God is merciful. That God is merciful and he's gracious to his people and he's always going to be faithful to his promise. There's never a moment where our faithfulness changes the faithfulness of God. And he wants his people to remember this. And he does it by the use of a meal that represents this. Now, how many of you guys would say that you have the gift of hospitality? It's okay. Um, You don't have to worry about the gift of being humble right now. Um, How many of you have the gift of hospitality? I mean, everybody's got a spiritual gift, okay? And and that's one. Um, Like, you love to host people. You love, to, you love to feed people. You love to have people in your home. You love to create a warm and welcoming environment for people. I praise God for people like you because I want to come to your house and I want to eat at your home. I want to spend time with you um, because you just love people by serving food and you love people by setting a, a good table. You communicate your love for people and what happens around your table. Now, you can tell the difference between somebody who has a gift of hospitality and somebody who doesn't, Right? You go to a home that just somebody is just loving on you and you walk in and it is just the table is set amazingly and there's candles maybe and there's whatever, you know, it just looks amazing and it smells amazing and they have prepared for you to be in their house. And when you walk in, you just feel it, man. Like you feel connected, you feel loved, you feel like, man, this, this is where I want to be and this is where they want me to be. And then you have the other side of the coin where you walk in, it doesn't even look like they were expecting you to come in. Like come on over and you show up, you're like, were we supposed to be eating? Like, did you know, like we, this, checking the calendar, like we are got the right time, right? And it's just the complete opposite. Some of y'all got the gift of hospitality and some of you don't. Some of the, they just throw food at you. Um, there's something about a meal at a table that communicates love. Something about a meal at a table that creates connection for people. And you and I, we didn't create that idea. God put this together. He he created this a long, long time ago. He is fully aware that food is very capable of bringing people together. So it should be no surprise to us that God gave Israel all kinds of festivals and feasts to observe throughout the year so that they can celebrate together, so that they can eat together. Uh, When God freed Israel out of the hands and the grips of, of Egypt, he gave them some very specific instructions to follow in Exodus chapter 12. 
He tells them that you've got to go find a lamb, you've got to find one that's without blemish, and you've got to prepare it for sacrifice. And you've got to sacrifice it in a very certain way. And they had to take the blood of that lamb, and they had to put it on the doorposts of their home and the lintels of their homes. Um, God also said that he was going to send an angel out to take the life of every firstborn male of the Egyptians. And we've got to ask, why on earth would God do something like that? Well, because Pharaoh was being a jerk. And he kept lying when he said he's going to let the people go. And God uh, relented and he did not, uh, and then he would turn his back and then God would send another plague. And, and so it would just have this ongoing thing and Pharaoh just kept lying and he kept oppressing God's people. And so God said, oh, that's enough. I'm done with this. I'm getting my people out of here and I'm getting them out of here tonight. And this is what you need to do. You need to put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. And so when there's going to be an angel that's going to come by and when he sees the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorway of your house, he's going to pass over their homes. That's Exodus 12, 23, if you want to write that down. But here's where the table and the food come in for Passover. God said, take a perfect lamb. You sacrifice it. Sacrifice it for sin. You roast it. You don't boil it. You roast it. Why, why on earth would God ask them to sacrifice a lamb like that? Because when they would see the blood, they would remember that God passed over their homes and that God saved them, just like he had promised he would. They would remember his mercy. They would remember his grace. They would remember his promise. He told them to prepare some bitter herbs. Why on earth would they want bitter herbs? God chose that so it would remind them of the bitterness of slavery that their ancestors had gone through, that they were a part of. Bitter herbs. And he tells them to prepare unleavened bread. Why would he use unleavened bread? Unleavened bread is bread with no yeast and it doesn't really rise. So why would he want that? Well, it would be a significant sign for them. For the seven days leading up to the meal and throughout the meal, they would have to make sure that there was no leaven inside the house. They would have to sweep it clean to make sure it stayed clean of leaven, which was a, sin, which was a symbol of removing sin out of your life. It was also a way for them to remember how quickly they had to get out of Egypt because God said, keep your shoes on your feet, put your belt around your waist, and you keep it tight. You keep your cloak tucked up into your belt so that when it happens, you guys are able to run as fast as you can out of this place. I want you to remember how quickly I got you out of here, how quickly you had to go. So no leaven. And so when Mark writes that it was time for the Passover and time for the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, there are roots to the Jewish history that are going on here. But Mark, when he's writing this, all this has already taken place. So he's writing from the perspective of already having seen the crucifixion, he's seen the resurrection. So for him, the, the preparation of the Passover meal, it was fulfilling this Old Testament requirement to remind them of how God showed them grace then, but what they were getting ready to experience during this meal, which was going to be a symbol of removal. Oh, sorry, went back. Uh, it, was, it was to be a symbol for them as they, they left that God was preparing the way for them, not only for God's grace then, but for God's grace now, and it was getting ready to come through Jesus at the cross, just in a few short moments. Do you guys remember what John said in, in the first chapter when, when, he saw, when he saw Jesus walking by? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? You guys remember when John says this? When he sees Jesus, he recognizes that this is the Passover Lamb. I don't know if he fully understood what he was saying. But he recognized that there was something about him that knew that he was the one that they had been waiting on. And so on the scope of history, 
It was time for the sacrificial lamb that was making God's grace available for everyone. And there's a banquet that's celebrating this. And that banquet is going to be the banquet of all banquets. There are three things that I want us to, to walk away with this morning, uh, or three things that, that kind of set up this passage. It's the preparation for the meal, it's the betrayal of Jesus, and it's the table of grace. Those are the kind of the handrails for the morning. So the preparation of the meal goes like this in chapter 14, verse 13. <clears throat> he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So here you've, you've got the disciples. They're in Jerusalem with Jesus. They're looking for a place to celebrate this Passover that we just talked about that is um, given in Exodus 12 to commemorate for the rest of their lives, this table. And the disciples ask him, hey, where, where do you want us to go prepare the Passover? We know it's Passover time. And, and so they're ready to set this up. And so Jesus gives them instructions on where to go and do this. So here's what we need to do. We need to consider the timeline of what's happening right now in Jerusalem. It's the time of the year where all of Israel is supposed to be celebrating the Passover. So now everybody's in town to celebrate. Uh, so like any other out-of-town guest, they had to find a place to celebrate as well. They had to go either rent a place where they could sit down and have the Passover, or they had to go borrow a banquet hall uh, in order to be able to celebrate the Passover with too. And so it was, um, it's just a remarkable thing. Um, this isn't in my notes, it just popped in my head. It's a remarkable thing that when Jesus was born, he was born in a time where the place was full and they had to try to find a place for him. And now as he's getting ready to exit, they are looking for a place again to celebrate what he came to do. I don't know, maybe do a study on that and, and see what you find. Um, because I think that's a kind of a cool, cool connection. Um, if you do study that, please let me know and, and, and tell me about it. Right now, we are in uh, peak wedding season, uh, right? Glenna, Glenna is uh, our, our wedding kind of coordinator around here. And around May to August time frame, like weddings, like people are just booking. How many, how many of y'all in here got married sometime between May and August in, in your life? Raise your hand. Would you look at that? May through August, man, like that is just peak wedding time. And it is hard to find, unless you're getting married in somebody's backyard, um, it's really hard to find a place to get married during May through August because everything kind of books up. Um, and so um, brides are calling around and saying, hey, do you have space? Can we get married there? Is there an opportunity? Uh, and the deal is a lot of these places book out a year or two in advance, right? And so it is a hectic time in a bride's life trying to find a place to have your wedding. Some of you men who are in the room right now, you might be feeling the pressure of finding a place today to take your wife or to take your mom. And you're wondering, is there going to be a place that's open? Is there a banquet hall anywhere that I can take my wife for lunch? And so you may be experiencing that at some point today. It's the same time. It's what's going on in Jerusalem. Every year, Jerusalem is full of people for the Passover. They want to, you got to be inside the walls of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And so people are flooding the place and banquet halls are booked up. But here's the thing. Jesus has called ahead. He said, hey, do you have room for us? He's got a place for them. He's already booked this place. Uh, and the foreknowledge and the planning of Jesus, it can't be overlooked here. Look at the details. 
He says to these two disciples, he says, go find a man in town carrying a water jug. Now think about that. Everybody's in town to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you go find this guy who's walking around somewhere with a water jug? Doesn't that sound a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack? A a little bit, right? But it's actually not as bad as it sounds because men didn't carry water jugs during that time frame. They carried wine skins and they carried other things, but they did not carry the water jars. The women carried that. Um, And so Jesus had set this whole thing up so that it would be very easy for this man to spot, to find the one who stands out, find the one who's got the the water jar. And so he says, when you find him, follow him to a particular house. When he gets there, talk to the owner of that house and you ask him. And I want you to pay close attention to this because this is how detailed Jesus is in, in verse 14. He says, when you get to this house, go to the owner of that house and you tell him, hey, the teacher has sent me. And this guy's going to understand what you're talking about. He's going to know that I've sent you. Well, why isn't Jesus going to do this himself? Why is he only sending two people? He's not going to send all 12 in there. He's not going to go by himself because what are they trying to do to Jesus? They're trying to kill him right now. Jesus is tactically smart in this moment. He sends two guys to go get this meal ready so that he doesn't die prematurely. And so he sends these two guys and he tells them for the owner of the house, he says, ask him, tell him, the teacher wants to know Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? If you circle in your Bible, would you circle that? Because this is another moment of God's or Jesus' sovereignty here. Um, He says, where is my guest room, his guest room? Jesus, he's already worked out all the details with the owner. When did he work it out? I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us when he worked it out. But we do know that he already had an arrangement with with this owner. And he says, when you get there, he's going to show you a large upper room that's all set for you, clean and swept out. There's not going to be any leaven inside. And it's going to be ready for the Passover. It's a banquet hall. There are going to be cushions that are sitting there for your chairs. There's going to be a large table that's set up. And it's going to be ready for you to get all the food preparations ready for our Passover meal. Now, in those days, um, most homes were these simple structures. Sometimes homeowners would add a a second floor to their home uh, so that they could host people or so that they can make a little bit of money. They would turn the the second floor into a banquet hall or something that could be rented out. Um, And there would be a staircase that would be running on the outside of the home so that you could get to the second floor from the first floor without bothering anybody. We have a, a picture here uh, of what something like this would look like. This is not time-specific, right? This is, this is much later. But you can see the stairwell that would go from the outside to the second floor so that the first floor folks don't get disrupted at all. When we go to uh, India, uh, you can see the same thing today. Uh, we have uh, friends and we have missionary partners. You can go ahead and throw the next picture up. Um, we have missionary partners there um, who used to have a single-story home and then because they wanted to plant a church or they wanted to start plant church, starting to plant churches, um, they started saying, you know what, let's just build a, a second story on top of our house and we'll use that second floor as a banquet space during, um, during the week. And then on Sundays, we'll use that for church. And that's exactly what they do. And you see, this is the second floor. They add, they've actually added a third attic space on top of theirs. Um, but these are our brothers and sisters in India who are using a second floor for church. 
And then they use it for a banquet hall as well. Had the privilege of preaching in that church uh, a couple times over the last uh, few years, and it's uh, been really fun to spend time with them. Jesus says, go find this room that's prepared for you, and your job is to get the meal ready. So they know where the room is, and they know what their job is. They've got to get a spotless lamb. They've got to get the bitter herbs They've got to get the unleavened bread ready. I think the sacrifice would have already been ready by this time. Um, And so they've got to prepare the lamb, just as Exodus 12 says. And so that's the preparation for the meal. Let's look at Judas' betrayal here again in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and they were eating, now think about this. These guys are reclining at the table. They're spending some time together. They are in a relaxed state. They are enjoying and embracing this time. When you sit around the table with your friends, that's intended to be a place of love. It's intended to be a place of care together. And you can just feel this sense of they are just relaxed together. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12. He's saying, it's one of you. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Do you guys notice when you're reading this that there is this dramatic shift that takes place? They are hanging out. They are spending time together. They just kind of had this lighthearted moment where the disciples, they've prepared the meal They're laying back and relaxing at the table. They're eating together. It's Passover time. And and then later, during the meal, when everybody's just kind of sitting there, maybe they're telling stories about what they've done over the past three years. Certainly during this time, they're recalling how God had saved them or saved their ancestors and had been faithful to them and merciful and gracious to them. They're having those conversations, sitting around this table. And then all of a sudden, Jesus just kind of stops. All the air feels like it gets sucked out of the room. He starts looking around. God has been faithful to you. God has been faithful to Israel. God has held up his promises. (laughs) But one of you is going to betray me. Somebody who's eating with me right now. And they all have this like kind of bewilderment and they start asking themselves, (laughs) is it me? Am I the one who's going to do it? And there's these moments of, of self-doubt. It's like, am I going to have just kind of like, I'm going to blow it moment at some point? And they're all asking, is, is, is it going to be me? We've already talked a little bit about how intimate sharing a meal together is. There's so much that happens around the table together. And the table in this room, it's there. But it's never about the table. It's never been about the table. The table and the food, they create this environment for connection. And they create an environment for bonding. And the people who are sitting around the table are usually your friends. Now, this happens today, too. But in the first century, when an ancient reader would have read this, table fellowship for them, it's not to be defiled. Like, this is an intimate time. Um, It's not to be defiled. To know that there was somebody who was sitting at the table and that was dipping bread with you, but in their heart, they're already against you. They've already gone and they've betrayed you and they are selling you out. That would be horrifying for any reader to read during this time. It just, it just doesn't happen. Yet there is somebody who is sitting at this table who's supposed to be a friend, but behind the scenes he is selling out Jesus. Judas has already made a deal to sell Jesus out. We know that. 
And I'm guessing that he thought that nobody was ever going to find out. You think? I'm guessing that he thought nobody was going to know. And sin does that to us, doesn't it? Sin and, and Satan, it convinces us that nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to get hurt. There's not going to be any real consequences that come from this. But sin, listen to me, sin always has consequences. Sometimes it might be immediate. Sometimes it might be delayed. Sometimes you may never even see the effect of the sin, but your family is going to deal with it for generation after generation after generation. So don't kid yourselves. Sin always has a consequence. And if we don't believe that it does, we're not fooling anybody else other than ourselves. Sin always has a consequence. Now, we know that Jesus, he's going to the cross and he's going to die because of the actions that are taking place with Judas. We know that. Guilt and shame are going to eventually eat away that Judas, the money that he wanted so badly and the money that he stole in order to get that money and uh, the, the, the idea that he was willing to sell out a friend, that's not going to be enough to satisfy, satisfy his soul's longing. So eventually we read that he's overcome with guilt. He's overcome with shame. He runs and he tries to give the money back. <laughs> they won't take it because now they said it's blood money. We can't, we, we can't receive that. We've already given it. And then Judas, he eventually goes and he takes his own life. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? I want you to listen to me. If you're sitting here right now, you need to know that sin has a consequence. But if you're alive right now, and we all are, sin doesn't have to take your life. Do you hear me? The shame and the guilt that you feel when you mess up and when things are going wrong, it does not have to take your life. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover. Guilt and shame, those things come from the enemy. Those do not come from God. Jesus says that I've come that you might have life. The enemy, the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. Not guilt and shame. He's come to give you life. I have lost friends in my life to ridiculous acts of sin because they just ran this course and they have eventually lost their life. I've lost friends because of suicide. Jesus has saved me from the consequence, the lasting consequences of my sins so many times over that I can't even count how many times he's, he's saved my bacon from this. Sin doesn't have to take your life. That's what the whole Passover is about. That's what Jesus is doing. That's why Jesus came. He came to die for the sin of those who would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their lives so that they might have life in him and not the death consequence of sin. What Jesus is doing around this table is absolutely amazing. He is saying, grace is here. Grace is here. Grace, grace, grace. Grace is here. Even if you have 30 pieces of silver jingling around in your pocket right now, he is saying, grace is here for you. I want you to notice how Mark writes this. There is never one time where Jesus names Judas. It never blasts Judas. Now, Matthew and I think Luke or John, one of those two, there's two other gospel writers, they include the name here, but that's after the fact, that's looking back. Jesus never puts Judas on blast. He doesn't say that, that there's not a moment where the meal stops and Jesus looks at Judas and he says, you know what, Judas, I know what you did. And now everybody else is going to know about it too. Why doesn't Jesus put Judas on blast like that? There's still a chance for him to repent. 
there's still a chance for him to change his mind. There's still opportunity for him not to walk this path out. He doesn't have to go through with the whole plan. But here's the thing. Sin would tell you, well, you're already this far. You're already down the path this far. Why not just keep going? You can't turn back now. Just walk this thing out. No, Jesus has set for you and me a table of grace to experience through repentance and through forgiveness, to walk back with him. But Jesus is giving a chance for Judas to experience his grace. Maybe you need to run back to Jesus this morning. Maybe the table of grace that was set over 2,000 years ago, that was a table that you need to be around right now. Or you've walked away from the place at the table and you need to come and sit your tail back down in it. This is a table of grace. You know, sometimes the church culture today, we're so quick to blast people. We look for opportunities to find the fault lines instead of looking to see where God is at work in somebody's life. No, you messed up. Well, you know what? Maybe God is at work. And all you see is the mess up. But God is doing an amazing work that you can't see, but we're ready to blast somebody out. Is sin a problem? You bet it is. It's an attack on the character of God. It's a breach of relationship. It's a wedge between you and God. It's a break of trust. It's a break of dependency. It leaves us leaning into things um, for hope that can't sustain the weight of our hope. It leaves us dependent on something other than God. But it's somebody else's heart that's at odds with God. And our job isn't to be the town crier of their sin and to let everybody know that they've jacked up. Our job is to come alongside of them personally and privately and to try to win them back, to try to win a brother or sister back for Christ. Jesus says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him to have never been born. That woe there was this guttural um, kind of uh, just an ah, whoa. It was out of this personal pain that somebody feels or the anguish that they feel for they feel for somebody else. And it was, maybe it was a word that's uttered, but it was more of a just coming straight out of pain. I think for Jesus here, this is gut-wrenching heartbrokenness for, for Judas here because he knows how Judas' life is about to play out and it wrecks him from the inside out. And we wonder sometimes, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth staying faithful to Jesus? Is it worth coming back to Jesus after we've run from him? Is repentance worth it? Was it really worth it for for Jesus? Well, we keep reading through the scriptures and we see, well, yeah, he went through with it, so it must have been worth it to Jesus, huh? It must have been worth it to him. Can I just give us one applicational point this morning? Jesus let Judas sit at the table, and yet Judas rejected. And can I say he offers you a seat at the table? Don't reject it. If you've run from your seat, come sit back down. If you're running away, know that you don't have to keep running away, that you can hit a moment where you just turn back. Lord, I'm sorry, I've been running, and I I want my seat back. Can I I come and sit? He never took it away. It's there, and it's waiting for you. There's a seat at the table for you. Come and sit down. Um, These next verses, we're going to enter into communion. So I want to invite our worship team up. Um, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus as that Lamb. And here's how this passage ends for the morning. 
So he's just addressed the sin issue that's sitting around the table, giving Judas a chance to, to repent and not to walk it out. And in a meal that they're very accustomed to, sitting down and the, the lamb, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, the wine. Uh, there's traditionally four cups that go with the Passover meal. We don't know which cup that Jesus has in his hand when he's talking about this, but one of them. And here's what he says to his friends and for you and me this morning. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You know when he says this is the blood of, of the covenant? You know what he's talking about? He lived under a, a, a code of law under the old covenant. And Jesus fulfills that law. And then now he's bringing the covenant of grace that we can live in and live under and that we can accept Christ. His spirit indwells us. And then we live out Christ every day of our life. Or we, let, we let him live his life through us. He said, I'm giving you this new covenant and the bread that you eat, you're going to do this in remembrance around the table as a reminder of my body, which is going to go to a cross real shortly and be broken for you. That cup that he has, he says, this is the new covenant. This is the blood that's going to ratify that new covenant. This is what's going to make it work. And every time you drink this cup, I want you to remember my life and my death and that it was for you. It was for you. It was my mercy. It was my grace. It was fulfillment of my promise. And so this morning, we're going to remember the promise that Jesus has made to us. If you're a believer with us this morning, I want to invite you to the table. There are um, gluten-free options that are uh, in the table. We have four, four tables here um, with, with bread and um, juice on there. And we just want, we want to remember what God has told us to remember, or Jesus has told us to remember. Would you pray with me? Father, so thankful to be in your word this morning. I just feel so inadequate to open it up and to, to teach it. But Lord, I pray that you would use it this morning. I pray that you would challenge our hearts, that you would call us back to you, that you would put us into the word, um, that you would allow us to walk faithfully with you, that as a body of believers, Father, that we would trust you, that we would trust your mercy, that we would trust your grace, and that it was for us, not just for somebody else, but it was for us personally. And as we sit around the table, and we remember and we wonder, is it worth it? <laughs> yeah, it's worth it. It was worth it. And the bread and the juice reminds us of that. So, Father, we're thankful for you. Would you bless the bread and the juice as we take it together as families? In Jesus' name.